Have you ever waited at a gate? Before going into ministry, Judy and I were at a church up on the North Island and the youth worker, his wife happened to be expecting a baby at the same time that Judy was. And the two ladies were good friends and they were in the same young mum's Bible study group together. And then not long between each other, both families were blessed with two lovely wee daughters, our Sarah and their Bethany. Now, when the girls were about three, the youth worker felt a call to ordain ministry and travelled down to Dunedin to Knox to train. And then a couple of years later, we also followed them down to train for the ministry. And I remember being up north in Rotorua and the great adventure, you know, packing up and then putting the family in the car and making that long trip down. And we made it to Dunedin, travelled up to the hill suburb of Opaho and turned into our street and as you do, excitedly, start to look at the letterboxes to know what is your new house. And as I was driving up the street, up ahead I noticed a figure of Bethany. And she was standing by our gate. She was waiting by our gate. It turned out that the the Knox house that we were allocated was only two doors down from Bethany's house. And so she had spent, as it turned out, most of the morning waiting at our gate. So have you ever waited at a gate? Uh, You might be waiting for someone and you're in the house and you hear a car door slam and you think, oh, that's, that's your husband who's been away on a, on a business trip or it might be um, your wife who's been down country with family. If you've got a dog in a house and they hear the door slam, the car door slam, they'll know, they'll know who it is. Or maybe at the arrival gate of an airport. Have you waited with excitement, anticipation for a loved one? at the rival gate of the airport, not so much now under lockdown. Well, in many respects, Moses, as we pick up the story in Exodus, he's he's waiting at the gate. And even though there are no uh, literal gates in the wilderness and certainly no airports, he's waiting to be reunited with his family. And that's what Exodus 18, the first part that we're going to open up today, looks at, the reuniting of Moses with his family and some tremendous and unexpected implications for us so before we open up the text let's let's pray heavenly father we thank you for the riches of your word and the privilege that we have that we can open it up this morning we pray lord that you will soften our hard hearts and unblock our deaf ears to hear and see jesus in your word may we be transformed by your holy spirit in jesus name amen Now we're picking up the passage, our passage in chapter 18. And where are we up to? Well, we're halfway through the Exodus story. And Moses and the people of Israel, they've escaped Egypt. Uh, They've crossed the Red Sea. And they're now making their way to Mount Sinai where they will receive the law. And they're only a few days away. So chapter 18, verse 1. Now Jethro, the priest of Midian and father-in-law of Moses, heard of everything that God had done for Moses and for his people Israel and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. And here we learn that words getting around. News has traveled to surrounding nations about how Pharaoh's been defeated and how his slave nation has been stolen away from him. And the news spreads. And the name of Yahweh, that great God, the great rescuer, has been spoken about been glorified even amongst the nations and this news of this God and this rescue and this unknown Moses 
reaches the ears of Jethro. And for him, this is no distant news. It's no gossip amongst the nations. For him, it's it's family. It's family news. Because what had happened is that when Moses had made it back to Egypt, he had decided that it was unsafe for Zipporah and for his two boys to be there during the confrontations with Pharaoh. So he had sent them back to Midian. Now Jethro hears that Moses has won a great victory, that God has blessed the country, and so decides to pack up and reunite the family. And so he travels out into the wilderness, and we pick this up in verse 5. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, together with Moses' sons and wife, came to him in the desert where he was camped near the mountain of God. Jethro had sent word to him, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons. As it was common practice in those days, Jethro doesn't just rock up to Moses' tent and says hello. He sends a messenger to Moses. And you can imagine Moses dropping everything and then going out to greet his father-in-law and be reunited. Do you imagine how Moses had felt? (laughs) A little bit like Bethany waiting at our gate or those times that you've waited at the arrival gate at an airport. And so we can imagine him hurrying out and we pick up this wonderful reunion in verse 7. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. They greeted each other and then went into the tent. And here we have a, a traditional Near Eastern greeting, with Moses paying due respect to his elder with the bowing and with the kiss. This is very much a formal greeting between the lesser Moses with the greater, the elder, Jethro. And I imagine after the formalities, hugs and kisses all around, as Moses is reunited with Zipporah, his wife, and his two boys. And then joyfully, Moses accompanies them back to his tent. And there's so much to catch on, so much. I mean, Moses hasn't seen his father-in-law since just after the burning bush, where he knows that he must go back to Egypt and to danger in the unknown. And there he farewells Jethro. And goodness me, how much has transpired since that farewell. And so we pick this up in verse 8. Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake, and about all the hardships they had met along the way, and how the Lord had saved them from them. We can imagine something of this very animated conversation. We can imagine Moses, he couldn't keep still. He'd be pacing backwards and forwards and waving his arms and gesturing as he told of the magnificent palace of Pharaoh and the confrontations and each of the ten plagues and then the midnight escape. And we can imagine the two boys, his two sons, sitting down wide-eyed. Maybe between them they were holding the staff, Moses' staff, as he told them about how he held out the staff and the Red Sea parted, how, how water came from the rock and how he held the staff and his hands in the air, and the Amalekites were defeated. And so his family had heard something of these stories uh, circulating around the country of Midian, but now they're hearing a first-hand account and getting all the detail. And so what's their response? Verse 9, Jethro was 
delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. We can take a pause here for a moment as the family rejoices, reunites and catches up because we come to our first take home, the first implication for today. For in this family reunion, we see both an example and a method for evangelism. An example and a method for sharing our faith. Let me explain. You see, Jethro is not Jewish. He cannot trace his roots back to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Unlike Moses and the Israelites, he is not an heir to the promises of God. In fact, he is a pagan priest. He worships other gods. Yet Moses does what comes naturally and shares with Jethro all that God's done to save them, about the hardships that they've faced and how God has rescued them from the hardships. And so here we have an example of someone who is following God, sharing with someone who is not following God. And that really is a definition of evangelism. Someone who is following Jesus, sharing with someone who isn't following Jesus. And not only that, we see that Moses is sharing with a family member. And those of us know that that can be quite a challenge to share our faith with a family member, even an in-law. How many of us have shared our faith with an in-law that's not following Jesus? So there's a real challenge here, but a wonderful example of Moses and his excitement. Can't help himself sharing about how God has saved him from his hardship. And this brings to an example of how to witness, the example of how to witness. You see, we tend to make evangelism a lot more complicated than it needs to be. We worry about whether we've got the right words to say. And we worry about how the other person will react, whether there will be pushback, whether they'll ask difficult questions or just be quite anti-us. Yet here, Moses shows us a very simple way in which we can share our faith. And it's like this. It's something that we can do. Share a trouble or hardship that you've faced and then share how God has saved you or sustained you through that hardship. Give a testimony. And it might go something like this. Now, there's as many testimonies as there are people uh, listening or watching this sermon. But it might go something like this. You might want to share something like, before my life was aimless, or before my life was a mess, or before life was just so hard. But now, this is how God has rescued me, saved me, or sustained me. This is the difference that Jesus has made in my life. Uh, It might go something like this. You might share how you lost a business, or a marriage, or a loved one. But then how Jesus saved you, sustained you through that. It might be a health issue. You or a loved one might have faced a very difficult health situation. And then you share how Jesus has saved you. I think of friends of Judy and I that has their lads about our age and and when he was about four or five diagnosed with uh, leukemia, with cancer. And it was a long journey. But, you know, even 15, 20 years later, they quite happily say, that was a hard time, but goodness me, God made all the difference in the world. What a powerful testimony. 
What a powerful witness it is when we share a testimony, a story with Jesus at the centre. Never underestimate how powerful that is. And in Revelation, we not only learn how powerful that is in witnessing, but how powerful it is to defeat Satan. When we share about our troubles and then how God has been good to us in our troubles and saved us, it actually defeats Satan. Revelation 12, 11 says this. They, that's us, overcame him, that's Satan, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. You see, as we declare God's goodness to us, even in our hardship, the devil's schemes are foiled, thwarted, brought to nothing, defeated. As we trust in the blood of Jesus that covers us and cleanses us and makes us clean, Satan is defeated. He's brought to his knees. And so, in this family reunion with Moses joyfully sharing with Jethro, we have before us both an example and a method for evangelism. Now, what was Jethro's response to this, to Moses' testimony? We've seen that he's delighted, but also verses 10 and 11, we'll see how impacted Jethro was. Verse 10, Jethro said, Praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh and who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods, for he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. Now what's happening here? Well, there's a transformation. Jethro, the pagan priest, who spends all his time worshipping other guys, declares, Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the other gods. Yahweh, your God, Moses, is greater than all the gods that I worship. What a turnaround for someone who's in the business of serving and worshipping other gods. And as we come to the end of this passage in Exodus, the last verse, we come to something quite unusual. On one hand, it's something simple and easily missed. On the other hand, it foreshadows something tremendously profound and with a huge scope and implications for us today. So let me read this rather simple verse in Exodus 18, Verse 12, then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and other sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses, his father-in-law, in the presence of God. Now what's happening here? Two things. First of all, both Jew and Gentile worship together, and both Jew and Gentile sit down and eat together in the presence of the Lord. And you may think that's very simple, but it has profound implications for us and our future. You see, in a few days, the Israelites will reach Mount Sinai and they will start receiving the law. And in the law, there are very specific ways of worshipping and very specific food or dietary requirements. And the one of the effects of this worshipping and dietary expectations is that it restricts both the worship and the eating together of Gentile with Jew. So by the time Jesus came on the scene, a true and a better Moses, 1,500 years had lapsed and the restrictions of Jew and Gentile worshipping together and eating together were very strict. 
And so the temple, the Jewish temple, the centre of, of worship of God's people, it had an outer court where Gentiles could gather, but there were two inner courts. And if a Gentile went into any of the inner courts, they would be killed. They would be stoned on the spot. And no Jewish person would go and even enter a Gentile home, let alone sit down and eat with them. And yet, when Jesus came, he changed all this. Jew and Gentile would now be able to worship together and eat together in the presence of God. And Jesus did this in two stages. And the first stage was all to do with the night he was betrayed and he instigated the Last Supper, communion. And the big deal with communion was not only do we celebrate Christ's death and all that he's done for us, but Jew and Gentile now sit around the table, they worship together, and they eat together in the communion table, all in the presence of God. So to this day, around the communion table, Jew and Gentile, any ethnic group, meet together and worship and give God all the glory. So that's the first stage. Now, the second stage of Jew and Gentile worshiping, eating together, is to come at the consummation of history, when Jesus comes again and there is that great banquet, that heavenly banquet that we will sit down and enjoy. Jew and Gentile eating together, worshipping together. Now Jesus talks about this in in Matthew 8. Matthew 8. Now what's the context? A centurion, a Gentile has come to Jesus and asked that his servant be healed. And Jesus is so impressed with this Gentile, the centurion's faith, that we read this in chapter 8. Verse 10 and 11, Matthew 8, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus makes it clear here and in other places in the gospel that at the consummation of human history, when he comes again, both Jew and Gentile will join in the great banqueting feast where they will worship God and celebrate and eat together in the presence of our Heavenly Father. But there's more here we have in this Exodus 18 story. Exodus 18 doesn't just foreshadow the great banquet of Jew and Gentile. It actually foreshadows the coming of Jesus itself. It provides a sequence of events to help us understand the coming of Jesus that second time. Now, Christians for millennia, ever since Jesus said that he will return, have been wondering about the sequence of events that will lead to his second coming. Well, what we're going to do today, uh, what I'm going to do is this passage in Exodus 18 foreshadows the sequence. And we're going to look at the sequence in in the New Testament, lay these two passages beside each other and see what we can find out. Now, the passage I'm going to turn to in the New Testament is from the earliest book written in the New Testament. Any idea what the first book written in the New Testament was? Well, most people think it's the Gospels, but no, Gospels were written after this book. They refer to an early time, but they were written afterwards. First Thessalonians written by the Apostle Paul, is the earliest book of the New Testament. 
And in it, we have this wonderful description of how Jesus will return. So we'll look at that, and then we'll lay it aside alongside Exodus 18. So let's turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. Now the context is, Paul taught that Jesus was coming again soon, but some of the Christians in Thessalonica were dying of, of natural causes, and they were starting to think, well, what's going to happen to folk that die before Jesus comes? And so in many respects, Paul is helped talking to reassure folk uh, about what will happen to their loved ones, but also them about the second coming. So uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. First Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. So in this early account, we have the following sequence. Jesus' coming will be announced by messengers. Then first the dead, and then Christians who are alive will be taken up to be with him. Now, the illustration sort of lingers there and says they will be with Jesus forever. However, Paul is drawing on a custom that the Thessalonians were very familiar with. And so the first Thessalonians and Paul knows what the next step in the sequence is. Let me explain. Uh, in New Testament days, if a king or a dignitary was going to come to a city like Thessalonica, they wouldn't just rock up and knock on the door. What they did is as they approached with their royal party, they would send a messenger into the city, maybe more than one. These messengers would proclaim that the king was coming. So the townspeople, the citizens, would then come out and meet the king and his royal party and celebrate and rejoice and sing as they accompanied the king into their city. Then there would be feasting and worshipping pagan gods. Now, it's very clear from the use of the words that Paul has in First Thessalonians that he's referring to this event. So even though he leaves us there with us all gathered around the king, both those that have gone before us, family members and loved ones, and ourselves and the king, Paul and the Thessalonians will know that the next step is for the king to come into the city and celebrate. This is the sequence because, of course, Christ, we will be caught up in the air. Some people call this the rapture. We'll be caught up in the air to meet Jesus and the loved ones, and then we will come down to the new heavens and the new earth where the Bible says every tear will be wiped away from every eye. We will all be comforted, and we will all sit down, Jew and Gentile, around the banqueting table. And see how this matches what we see in the Exodus story. So what happens? Jethro, the greater, comes with Moses' family with his loved ones. But he doesn't just rock up to the tent. He sends a messenger. The messenger goes to Moses. Moses drops everything. <laughs> he goes out and he meets the uh, the greater one. Moses the lesser meets the greater one and is reunited with his family. They come then back to his tent and then there's the banquet feast where sacrifices are made to the living God and they worship together Jew and Gentile. So can you see how this Exodus account of a family reunion points to foreshadows, not just the heavenly banquet, but actually 
the sequence of events of Jesus' second coming. There's a lot more that can be said about Jesus' coming and how that fits in with the book of Revelation and all that. But we have here the basic outline of what's happening, foreshadowed in our Exodus 18 account. So let's tie all this together. What have we learnt today? Well, this morning we saw that Moses was separated from his family. In the country of Midian, news had reached Jethro and Zipporah and the boys that God had rescued Israel out of slavery. And so Jethro decides it's time for the family to reunite. They make their way through the wilderness. Uh, Jethro sends a messenger ahead. Uh, Moses drops everything, (laughs) goes out and is reunited with Jethro and his wife and children. With joy, they come back. And Moses, in his excitement, shares about how God rescued out of her troubles and hardships and what a difference God's made. And this is a tremendous example to us about how we can share our faith, how we can witness to those who aren't following Jesus yet. But not only that, we see Jew and Gentile worshipping and eating together, which foreshadowed communion, which we celebrate today. But not only that, foreshadows the great banquet. And the third thing that we've looked at today, not just uh, evangelism and not just the communion and the banquet, but also the sequent events that leads to Jesus' second coming. How again, there will be that trumpet cry, that archangel's voice, and Jesus will come with all those that have gone before us. And then uh, we'll be caught up in the air and meet Jesus and celebrate. And then with the, the conquering, returning king, we'll come down. And we will celebrate the great banquet. Praise God. Praise God. And one final thought to leave you with. One final thought. Are you waiting at the gate? Are you waiting at the gate for Jesus? Remember I started today's message off with the story of young Bethany, five-year-old, who waited all morning at our gate so that she could see her best friend, five-year-old Sarah. And the sense of anticipation and excitement she had. Are you are you waiting at the gate for Jesus? Or maybe you can remember a time or in your mind, imagine a time when you go to the airport arrivals gate and a loved one you haven't seen for weeks, months, years, maybe with all this COVID disruption. And you're waiting at the airport, at the arrival gates. I mean, are you waiting at the gate for Jesus? Yes, while we're waiting, uh, we worship together, we take meal together around the communion, we share our faith with others. But I pray that each of us will have a heart that is moved and anticipates and longs for the ruined turning of Jesus. It's my prayer that each one of us, including myself, will wait at the gate for Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonders and the riches in your word. And we thank you, Lord, for an example here that we can share our faith with others. A remembrance of the of the wonder of communion where Jew and Gentile can sit and worship and eat together at communion. And also the coming of Jesus again and that heavenly banquet. Father, we pray that we will make the most of our opportunities as we wait and we long for Jesus to return again. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come. Through his name we pray. Amen.